0: My Mother, the Person and the Patient is an original podcast written and hosted by me, for Tumakuso. This podcast is about my mother, Timira Abdusaman. Ayaya, we call her. That's the Somali word for grandmother. And her great-grandkids call her ayaya too. And that's their way of saying great-grandmother. The first time I noticed... The signs of my mother's changing personality was early 2009, 10 years after she'd moved in with me when I became a single mother to five children between the ages of 2 and 12. Those 10 years, my mother saw me through some of the most difficult times of my life managing full-time university courses with a part-time job and caring for my children would have been impossible had it not been my mother's unfailing support. Her getting the children on and off the bus, organizing homework time and play time, and making dinners made my life so much easier. So when the change came, as you can imagine, it rattled me. It was as if though the foundation beneath my feet had been pulled and I was wobbling, trying to steady myself, but unable to do so at the same time. It started with paranoia, a confusion that took over my mother's beautiful mind. Someone took $100 out of my purse, she would say. Someone went in my jewelry box and took a ring, a necklace, a bracelet. She'd lived with us for 10 years and we didn't steal from her. We weren't going to start then, but that didn't help. If anything, my words only made her angrier. So a day or two later, if I saw her holding that hundred dollars, or wearing that piece of jewelry. And I asked her, Mom, isn't that what you said you were missing? She would say, No, I never said I was missing anything. So that went on for a while. But the alarm grew when one day... My mother put dinner in the oven and she totally forgot about it. So when my son got home and saw smoke pouring out of the oven, he asked her grandma what's in the oven? I think the dinner burnt. But my mother didn't know. She said she did not put anything in the oven. Maybe your mother put it in there before she went to work, she said. That added to the to the to the concern. That added to the alarm. That added to my worry. But I couldn't really Pin it. I didn't know what was going on with my mother. One day after that dinner incident, She asked my daughter, who was also a university student, if she can give her a ride to a friend that lived by the university, because we used to live by the university before we moved homes, so we had a lot of family, friends in that area. So my daughter said, yes, I can take you there. So she drove her grandmother, but when they were about three, four minutes of driving away from that friend's house, but... Um, about 10, 15, 20 minutes of walking. My mother said to my daughter, Can you drop me off here? Because I want to walk for the next 15, 20 minutes. Because if I get to my friend's house, we're just going to sit there and talk and not walk. And my mother was an avid walker. So my daughter said, Okay. She dropped her off at that corner and she said, tell your mother to pick me up after work from so-and-so's house. After work, maybe 3, 3.30, I get to the friend's house. She's not there. We hadn't seen her and we were at home the entire day. If she came, we would have seen her. There's no way we would have missed her. So when did she go? I called my daughter back and I said, are you sure? You dropped your grandmother there? Yes, I'm sure. And yes, she told me she was going to so-and-so's house. Okay, so I called everybody in the neighborhood that my mother would have known because I thought maybe maybe I thought she saw somebody on her way walking over to the friend and she decided to hang out with them so I called everybody for the next hour 40 minutes and nobody had seen her so I'm really this close about five minutes away from calling the police when uh, an acquaintance calls me and says hey we have your mother how did she end up at your house we don't know she just knocked knocked at our door. We don't really know how my mother got there and she didn't know how she got there. I just assumed maybe she continued to walk and walk and walk and luckily the door she'd knocked when she was exhausted, needed to use the bathroom, was thirsty, was hungry. She knocked at this door and that became a house where a family from Somalia that spoke her language and recognized her lips. So they let her in, they gave her something to eat they gave her some water a bathroom to use and they called us so when i picked up my mother and i asked her she had no idea she kept on saying you left me here you dropped me off here so more confusion and more concern Uh, and a few months later we had her regular physical check. So the doctor did the usual things, weighing her in, checking this, checking that, asking questions. Everything was fine. And then as we were finishing up, I just said to him, by the way, my mother seems to be really accusing us of things or assuming we're taking something from her. And he said, how do you mean? So I told him about the missing money and missing jewelry and then he said tell me more and I told him about putting food in the oven forgetting about it and I told him about going to saying she's going to go to this friend's house and ending up totally a different place two hours walk away and then he said we need to assess her I didn't know what he was looking into when he said we need to assess her but I said okay let's assess her so we did x-ray, blood test, MRI, CT scan, the whole bit. And when a few months later, the results came back and we went back to him and he said, I'm going to refer your mother to a neurologist. I didn't know why my mother needed to be referred to a neurologist because my mother didn't have a history of high blood pressure, uh, heart attacks, strokes. She didn't have a history of cholesterol, history of diabetes, none of that. 95% of her diet was plant-based and she was physically active, 100 times more active than I was at the time. So, I couldn't see, I didn't see why the doctor was sending it to a neurologist because in my mind, when older people, my mother was in her 70s at the time, when older people went to a neurologist, mainly it was because maybe they had a stroke or maybe they had a heart attack, but the doctor suggested it. So I thought, okay, we'll go. And we received an appointment for the neurologist. We went and saw the neurologist and he read all the results, sent us more tests, and we went back to him and he said, your mother has Alzheimer's. That was the first time Ever, I've heard somebody being diagnosed. I, of course, I heard the term um, intellectually out there, and I didn't know what the um, you know signs were, what the symptoms were. So the doctor said those confusing, you know, paranoia are the signs of really forgetting and not realizing you had forgotten. Therefore, saying somebody took it, putting something here and not know you put it there. Even when you see it and you get it from there, you don't know you were the one who put it there. So so he said this will get worse. We have a couple of medications we try. And the best we hope is that it slows the progression of the disease. That's all we can hope for. So he said you need to prepare yourself Prepare your children, prepare your siblings. This is going to be really hard. And I was determined, leaving that doctor's office, that I would be prepared. I would prepare myself and I would prepare all my loved ones to know what will happen with mom. But looking back 11 years later, I I could have never been prepared to what came after the diagnosis. Even if I go back to 11 years and I know what I know now, there was no way I could have prepared myself for what came. What my mother's progression of her disease for the last 11 years it's like switching a light. So you come into a dark room and you turn the light on and then you turn it off again. But the next time you turn it on, you see something different. So that's how progression of the disease had been. Just coming and coming. Sometimes there are months where nothing changed and sometimes there are days where things are changing on daily basis. So... So I couldn't prepare myself even though I was determined as I left the doctor's office to do exactly that. So now the only thing I could do is to do it one day at a time and try and remember who my mother was as the person rather than who she had become as the patient. When you listen to how we arrived at my mother's diagnosis and what followed. It's so easy to see her just as the patient, to see her as nothing more than the disease that reduced her to shell of her old self. But I want also to tell you about my mother, the person, the fierce woman that told her stories unapologetically, celebrating the beautiful parts, and harsh realities equally. I want to share with you the stories she told us about her life as a girl growing up in a small village, the tales that marked her adulthood. I want to share with you all her losses and the ultimate winnings. The following is one of those stories that my mother had told us, reconstructed from my childhood memory. At the onset of her first cycle, Timra's mother flew into a planning mode. This was a big deal. She wanted to celebrate her only daughter's entry into the fold of womanhood. Like all the other mothers in the village, she waited for the occasion with unparalleled enthusiasm. She began working on the outfit for the event almost two years prior, before Timira's 10th birth year. Only 28 years old, her mother was shorter than her father and slender. With long curly black hair, she'd always pulled into a bun. Before tucking it under her shash she looked much younger than her age. Timura struggled to understand why her mother or any other woman found this thing called cycle worthy of all the fuss. Between cramps and wet sticky mess that made her running to the outhouse every hour, she could have done without the entire thing. But her mother was so excited. As Timura's mother finalized the details of the day, she didn't walk. She floated her loose dress billowing around her. Moving from one house to another, she invited ten mothers and their daughters, girls close in age to Timiro, but young enough, they hadn't reached the milestone yet. Wake up, wake up! Her mother stood at the foot of her cot and smiled. That was the seventh day from the beginning of Timiro's cycle. The smell of the freshly baked bread coming from the cooking shed filled her nostrils before she opened her eyes. It's still dark outside, mom. Tamir couldn't see the sun's rays enter to the eastern window of their home. Even though the heat emanating from it damaged her skin, sweat drenched her blanket. Can I sleep a little longer? A day like today? Who needs a sleep? Her mother spoke in a sing-song tone. You're not planning on missing your day, are you? She exuded so much joy. You have no chores, no responsibilities, no worries. Today, it's all about you. The woman her mother had hired to design Hina on her came half an hour after she woke up. And the other girls and their mothers came soon after. Sit and Relax. Her mother placed the gimbal under the gold tree that stood in the middle of the village square. The ten girls and their mothers formed two circles around her. The girls formed the inner circle, the mothers the outer. They sang traditional songs that spoke of fertility, the sun and the moon, the stars of birth. Each line of the song, the mothers would begin with the first verse girls joining in the chorus by age, the youngest to the oldest. Under the cover of their melodious voices, her mother paid close attention to the henna design on her daughter's hands, not this one. That was the third one she'd rejected. Each time the woman drew something, Tamira's mother shook her head no. The woman would wipe it with a wet rag and start all over again. She is my only daughter, Timira's mother said when the woman looked up at her with questions in her eyes. With two boys at home, this is my chance, my only chance. In the end, she settled for a design that mimicked Peacock's tail. When the Hina decorations were complete, her mother took her inside the house. In the middle of the main room was a large metal wash basin. Next to it was a clay pot filled with hot water. Her mother handed her a bowl filled with a mixture of dates and butter. Rub it all over, she instructed, like soap. After a while, Timura's mother took a wooden ladle and poured warm water over her daughter until the water ran clean. She handed her a thick hand-woven towel to dry. Wrapped in the towel... Timura sat on a stool and her mother braided her hair, starting from the nape of her neck and ending at the top of her head. Her mother held the braids together with a pink ribbon before fashioning it into a beautiful flower, its center pinned with brooch. Wear this, she gave Timura and Aline Di Guntino and follow me. As they approached the tree in the middle of the village square, The other girls and their mothers clapped and ululated. Here, Timuro's mother pointed to a decorative wood stool her father had built for the occasion. Sit. Soon, all the other women in the village came, bearing gifts and food. They stayed in the square for the rest of the day, eating, singing, dancing, talking, and laughing. The sun rose hot the following Friday, almost a week after Tamira's celebration. Licking exposed the skin at the first contact. The air heaved thick, weighed down by an upcoming storm that refused to produce rain. Untold fear hung over the villagers like the clumps of humidity that adhere to the skin right before a heavy rain. Tamira and her friends Saadia and Ambiya stood far from the woman for they didn't want to be accused of eavesdropping. Still, they stayed close enough to hear them. This day was different. Unlike last week when they had gathered for her womanhood celebration, the cloudless bright blue sky didn't lift the awful mood of the adults. The boys, timorous brothers among them, played hide and seek around the village square where the adults had gathered. The boys were loud. Her and her friends yelled at them to be quiet so they could hear the woman whispering. But they didn't listen to them. The elder and all the fathers sat under the tree where her celebration occurred less than a week ago. Two women started cooking fire in the middle of the square and placed a large teapot on it. Maybe they knew the meeting would take a long time. Perhaps they busied themselves by gathering firewood to move their hands and occupy their scared minds. Timir's mother passed small mugs to the adults. as Asadiyah's mother followed her, filling each cup with dark tea. Sorry we have no milk, they apologized to each person. Everyone knew the cows had stopped producing much milk days ago. What milk was collected was reserved for the children. Still... Sadia's mother and Timur's mother issued one apology after another. The elder gave his thanks and the others followed. After a while, the women sat opposite to the men. They faced each other, silent. Even the boys stopped running around and paid attention now. Did they understand the seriousness of the moment? Could they feel the hush that fell over the village? Drought. The word left the elder's mouth like a curse, something that should have remained unsaid. This one is too harsh. A unanimous gasp rang around the square, as if the word sat on each person's chest. No one would speak of it, not in public, not before today. Perhaps it was said in people's homes when they were alone with their families. Her parents had uttered the word once but no one dared say it around others not before today. Next to Timura's father, the elder took a long gulp of his black tea. With all my white hairs, I'd never seen anything like this. He ran his hand through his hair, never. Even after the elder uttered the word, the adult seemed afraid of it. Both men and women stared at the fire and prayed, we must leave the village, the elder announced and go to the city. He gathered his soul around him tight. The city? It came like a cry from every mouth in the square. Today it's the animal dying, tomorrow people, the elder said. In the days that followed, the sky remained devout of clouds. Water grew scarce. The sun rose blazing hot and left the villagers scorched at night. Goats were cut off from drinking water first, the cows next, animals died. The first to go was the family's milking cow. No one talked about it, but everyone knew the time to leave the village in search of water was near. It was early in the morning, 15 days after her celebration that her mother shook her awake. Get up, we have to go. Her mother spoke fast, out of breath. Now she pulled off Timur's covers. Everyone is ready. Your father and the boys are ready. She took one of Timur's dresses out of the clothes basket, tied the sleeves together, forming it into a sack. She put all her clothes and pair of sandals and handed it to her. We have to go. Why are we taking all my clothes? <laughs> You're not planning on walking around wearing the same dress all the time, are you? Her mother laughed, even though the smile didn't reach her eyes to make their browns light up. When Timura and her mother came outside the house, her father was waiting for them in the yard. He walked ahead, her baby brother Isaac on his shoulders, his tiny shoeless feet dangling. Farah, her middle brother, took their father's right hand. Timira and her mother followed with the rest of the nine families traveling with them. The walk from the village square to the truck stop reminded her of the last funeral procession of a woman who died giving birth. The silence was overwhelming, heavy with the unspoken thoughts and the fears of the city. To a person, young and old, the villagers hated the city and its corrupt ways. Timira heard stories of how no one ever came back from the city as they went. It sounded to her as if the place took people in its claws, only to chew them and spit them out broken. At least that's what the adults had said, and she believed them. She saw no reason not to, and she was in no hurry to find it out for herself. They boarded the truck. There was not enough seats, so her father kept both boys on his lap and she squeezed in a tiny spot between her parents. Dry red dust rose all around them as they drove away. The smell of dead cows, goats and sheep carcasses oozed through the truck's windows. The landscape drifted by. For miles, there were no living creatures, no villagers, no children tending to goats or cows. The grain, corn, and sesame seed fields were barren. The rice farms dry and cracked. Homes scattered along the road they traveled stood abandoned. No smoke coming out of cooking fires. Sit still and eat this, her mother handed her a small wooden bowl. In it were pieces of two-day-old dry bread soaked in sugar water. I can't eat this, Timido complained. It's either this or be hungry until we get there. Her mother didn't dare say the name of the where in which they were headed. The dreadful place that grew in size for weeks now. From the moment the elder announced their imminent departure from the village, the fear of the leaving haunted them. How long until we get there? Timira hated the idea of leaving, yet was home for all her life, all 12 years of it. No one answered. How long before we come back, she asked. Her mother shushed her. She kept quiet as they continued to drive into oblivion. My mother, the person and the patient can be found in all your favorite podcast apps. Please subscribe, listen, share and follow. And join me next week for another episode of My Mother's Journey as both the person and the patient. Thank you.